Hey guys, this is Jeff Stanick from Figured Out Baseball. We've got a great Figured Out Baseball podcast today. We're being joined by Tony Capicelli. He's a minor league coach in the Dodgers, the Los Angeles Dodgers organization. Uh, a guy that I'm thoroughly excited to talk to and, and get into some questions with. I'll give you a background on Tony before we jump into questions with him. He's a native of Huntington Beach, California. He played collegiately at Nevada. He was there in the springs of 2000 through the spring of 2003. The 2000 team, when he was there, went to the regional. As a junior, he probably had his best year offensively. He hit 357 with 10 home runs. When he was finished playing at Nevada, he got to play one season of independent ball in the Frontier League. Then he jumped into the coaching ranks. He started coaching as an assistant coach at Edison High School, uh, a high school which is actually his alma mater in Huntington Beach, California. He then, in 2005, the spring of 2005, went to be the head coach at Trout Lake High School in Trout Lake, Washington. Was there for one season, then went back to Edison High School in California. He was there again from 2006 through 2009. In the springs of 2010 through 2013, he was an assistant coach at Irvine Valley College, a junior college in Irvine, California. During that time, beginning in the, in the summer of 2011, he spent the summers of 2011 through 2014 as the head coach of the Anchorage Bucks in the Alaskan Summer League. In 2014, the spring of 2014, he uh, went to be an assistant coach at UNLV, Division One school obviously in Las Vegas, Nevada. His one season there, UNLV went to a regional. He then went to the University of New Mexico to be an assistant coach from the spring of 2015 to the spring of 2017. The 2016 team there went to a regional, and all three years that he was at the University of New Mexico, the offense finished in the top 12 nationally in batting average. He was then hired by the Dodgers in August of 2017 in player development, also as a hitting advisor. And then most recently, in the spring of 2020, he was named to be the manager of the rookie-level team, the Ogden Dodgers. Obviously, that season was cut short. He didn't get a chance to manage the Ogden Dodgers, but that's what he was going to be in the spring of 2020. Uh, Tony, I sincerely appreciate you being on the podcast with us today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Uh, typically, I like to start with something that stands out from the bio, and there are several places that I could start here. Um, but I'm, I'm, I, I want to ask you a little bit about your time as a high school coach, actually, which might be uh, not the most, not not what people would expect me to start with. But uh, I'd like to ask about your time as a as a high school coach. You were. You went from your alma mater for one year. You went up to Washington State to be a head coach for one year. Back to your alma mater. Can you just kind of talk about that time of your life? Um, you know what drew you to Washington uh, for for a year. What you were doing up there besides that, and then going back to um, to Huntington Beach to Edison. Just kind of what you know. What else you were doing there? What your at that point? What your um, what you thought your future looked like, if you thought you were going to stay as a high school coach, and, and just kind of curious about that time of your coaching career and, and what things looked like for you back uh, between 2004 and 2009. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I, you know, I knew when I was playing in high school, I wanted to coach. It was, you know, my hope, obviously, like everybody else playing baseball, was that I was going to play, you know, for a long time at a high level, and, you know, I just didn't get that opportunity, and, so I started my coaching career sooner than I was, you know, anticipating. Um, more or less, the reason I started when I did was in 2004. I'm sorry, 2003. I was playing independent ball. Um, I was out there for a couple weeks and made a throw to third base and felt a pop in my shoulder and um, wound up having shoulder surgery. And so I was rehabbing and um, you know I didn't want to stay in Reno and just hang out there. So I decided to go back um, to Huntington Beach. 
teach and, and start coaching. And so I went back there. Um, you know, I was, that was a head freshman coach of my, my first coaching job. And um, so I rehabbed because I still wanted to try and play after that. So I went out there, uh, coached that year, wound up going back to Reno to go finish school. And, you know, I'd, I'd actually signed to go play independent ball again out in the Golden League. I was going to come out here to Mesa, Arizona. Um, but at the time, the first year of the league, they didn't have a DH. And so I, I just wasn't ready to catch every day. Uh, I hated first base. So it just wasn't going to work. It just Too many things were kind of working against me. So I wound up going and committing to play on a team up in Tacoma, Washington. And a friend of mine had played up there. It was kind of a mix of college guys and ex-pro guys, um, you know, just playing a, a, a season, a summer full of games, um, you know, hoping to get an opportunity to, to get better, um, you know, improve my, my arm again and, and get a chance to keep playing. And while I was up there, I found a, a team in Trout Lake, a school in Trout Lake that was looking for a, a head coach. And I really liked the area up there. You know, I was rehabbing. Um, I was pretty comfortable where I was at. And so I went in, put in an application, and end up sitting down with this, uh, with the athletic director um, and the principal at this high school in Trout Lake. And Trout Lake is about 90 miles east of Vancouver, Washington, straight along the Columbia River, and then 14 miles inland. And it's like at the base of Mount Adams. Um, and it was wild. I mean, there was, I've never seen anything like that. It was, and we'd have elk running through our outfield. Uh, we had players showing up late to practice on ATVs with a dead turkey on the back of it. They'd just gone hunting. Um, <laughs> just like, stuff I'd never, I'd never experienced before, but it was such a cool experience for me. You know, being out of Huntington Beach, just seeing like a different, um, you know, it was a different way of life, like in, in every aspect. So, um, you know, when I was young, I mean, I was a young, coach and I, I didn't know what I was doing and so I was probably a little um, harder on them than I than I should have been at the time but you know that's really all that I knew at, at, at that moment um, so I ended up staying there after that season as well and, and playing another summer up in uh, up in Tacoma and I was actually going to stay there and be the assistant coach at the University of Puget Sound a uh, good friend of mine Brian Billings who's now the head coach of Pacific University in, in Portland had offered me a job at Puget Sound. And so my plan was to stay there. And so I actually went home. I was going to go pack up my stuff and move everything else back up to Washington. And while I was there, got a, head, uh, a call from the new head coach at Edison High School. And he was, he was just, just um, he, he had been the pitching coach there and he had just taken over as the head coach. And he asked me if I wanted to come back and be an assistant for the varsity team. And, you know, it was my, it was my brother's senior year. And I thought that would be a really cool, you know, opportunity to, to be with my brother, uh, for his last year in high school. And, you know, opportunity to go back home. And, and so I, I couldn't pass up, you know, being back in Huntington Beach. And, and even though I wanted to coach in college, um, I mean, I, I had aspirations of coaching Division One baseball. However, you know, just being back in, in Huntington with, with my brother was, was, uh, too good of an opportunity to pass up. So I went back there, um, 2006. You know, we had a pretty good team. We had a bunch of Division One guys that, that had signed. 2007, we had a really good team. We won our league. Um, and then in 2009, we had a, another really good team. Won the league again. Uh, went to the, the CIF finals and um, ended up losing in, in Angel Stadium, uh, our last game of the year. But we had a couple guys that ended up playing on national championship teams. And Kurt Heyer played at Arizona. Um, 
Eric Folia, who played at UCLA, now in the Mariners system, uh, Red Sox, I think now. But anyway, he, uh, we had some, we had some really good players. We had a lot of top players. Kyle Higashioka, Henry Owens, uh, we had some guys that could really play. So it made, it made that experience of, of coaching at that level really fun. Um, you know, the, the whole thing of trying to figure out how to be a high school coach and make money was definitely interesting. I was doing my master's degree at the same time. You know, I was working at an elementary school as a special education aide. Uh, I was doing loss prevention at Best Buy, and so you better believe nobody stole anything while I was there. <laughs> uh, I made sure of that. <laughs> it, was, it was definitely a, uh, it was definitely an interesting time trying to figure out, you know, how to navigate coaching and, and you know, trying to be an adult, make a little bit of money, and, and survive. Gosh, that high school experience is like another world. Um, I coached high school ball here in Pennsylvania for one year after I left college ball and before I, I this website really started going. I coached high school for just you know a fall, spring, and a fall, and then I had to quit just uh, to coach and run this website and have my normal job and my kids. It was just it was too much, so I I had to drop one of them. But but like here, it was you know the coach the, the team that I coached total on the whole team i think we had uh four guys that went on to play college ball out of out of like the whole team you know and i think that they all went to play division two and we had a pretty good team uh for this area so it's i can't imagine it's a very hard to imagine being a you know coaching for a high school team that has future division one in draft picks and and uh did he, big league alums henry owens is familiar Henry Owens and uh, Kyle Higashioka was catching for the Yankees in the playoffs. Right, right, right. Yep, yep. Okay. It's um, pretty uh, amazing. Talia, he, might, he might have a chance. He can. Uh, he's the best hitter I think I've ever seen. Uh, at that level, he was incredible. Um, for hire, got up to AAA with the, with the Cardinals. Um, he was the Friday night starter for Arizona when they won the national championship. So it was, it was good. It was a good, good group of guys. Pretty good names on there. Warriors. Yeah. So then, what eventually broke for you that you decided to to get to get into the college ranks and give that a shot? Um, so, so the season. So during '07, um, it was it was end of summer, and a guy that I was coaching with had had asked me if I was interested in playing on this team that they were running, and it was an, it was an alumni team for UCLA, and they were traveling, going and playing some games, and. Um, they had somebody backed out at the last minute and basically he asked me if I'd go play in this tournament with them in Barcelona. <clears throat> so I went out to, to Barcelona in 2007, um, just played five games against Spain's national team. And that ended up being the end of my playing career. Uh, so it was kind of a cool way to, to wrap that up. But, you know, when I was out there, I kind of got this itch to, um, you know, travel and, and go do some other things. And so, in 2009, I got an opportunity literally three days after our season ended. Um, I was on a plane to Frankfurt, Germany, and I spent the summer, spent three months out there coaching with Major League Baseball's Envoy program. <clears throat> and the guy that I had met, Tom Myers, who's a scout with the Cubs, had turned me on to uh, Pat Doyle, who got me with the, the Envoy program and got me out to Germany. And that year, you know, at Edison in 09, when, when we were really good, um, I just kind of I, I decided that that was kind of it for me for high school. Um, I had always wanted to go coach in college, but I really wanted to make sure I took the right opportunities. Um, I wasn't just going to jump at something. I actually almost left Edison in, in 07 uh, to go to Orange Coast College with, with uh, the late John Altabelli. And, you know, I'd actually taken the job there and ended up calling Alto back and telling him that I couldn't take it because I 
I just started my master's and there was too much going on. So yeah, I think I kind of waited it out and made sure I was taking the right, um, the right opportunities and not just taking anything that was still in my way. So I really wanted to coach in college. I was kind of done with high school. And so in 09, I was in Germany, um, sending letters back and forth to, you know, junior colleges, to division one schools, trying to find a volunteer job and nothing came up. So finally, when I was out there, I interviewed um, at Irvine Valley with Kent Madol, and you know we ended up um, over the phone when I was when I was in Germany. He had hired me, um, so I came back and um, uh, started at, at Irvine Valley like within a week of, of getting back from from spending three months in Germany. So uh, it was a good opportunity for me to take a, a step forward into junior college. The junior colleges in Southern California are really really good. Um, not just the players. I mean, there's really talented players, but there's been a long line of coaches that have come through um, the, the Southern California or the, well, even California in general, uh, but the junior college system. So I was really excited about the opportunity to get out there, you know, kind of a step higher than the, than the high school, start recruiting, start networking a little bit more, and, and obviously still have the aspirations of going and coaching in Division One. Uh, but I thought that was a really good step for me to take, you know, to, just to be around that level, um, you know, just learn from guys that have been doing it for a long time. So um, I got to, to Irvine Valley, and it was really cool because Kent was um, – he was so great to me. You know, he got me classes to teach once I finished my master's. Um, you know, that the summer of 2010, I went out and coached in the Cape Cod League, and then I got the, the head job up in Alaska the next summer. So, you know, I was able to coach in junior college. I was able to teach some classes, um, and then I was able to go out and do summer ball. So I was still kind of getting my fix with – you know, division one or higher level players during the summertime. Um, and then getting back to, you know, our, our full season and recruiting and everything with the junior college. So the JC step for me was huge. For people that might not be familiar with the Alaskan summer league, I'd like to talk about that a little bit. Cause I was never up there as a player, but I, I coached players that were there and it just, it was like, um, from what I heard from them, you know, their stories about it, it was just it was another world it was unlike any other summer playing experience that that anybody else has had and these guys had gone to some pretty decent other leagues and would spend a year and it seemed like when guys went to the alaskan league it was like i want to go back i want to go back to the alaskan league especially for i i think certain types of players can you just kind of talk about that experience a little bit and for somebody that's never that's not familiar with it kind of try to paint a picture of what that league is like and what it's like to spend a summer up there well, Alaska was awesome. I mean, I, I've never, you know, I'm from Orange County. I don't hunt. I don't really fish. Um, you know, and everybody up in Alaska, a lot of the guys that we got up there were really interested in going up and fishing. Um, but when I got the opportunity to go up, you know, they, they flew me up there um, after I interviewed and after they'd hired me. I was like, this, you know, this is kind of a cool place. And, and the stadium in Anchorage was really cool. Um, I mean, I, I really liked it. So when I first got up there, you know, my first year trying to put the team together, you know, we, we got a lot of guys from some really big schools that, um, you know, were, were young, they were freshman guys, they didn't really play a whole lot. And so there was some growing pains that first year with, for me, just putting the team together. Uh, we had a great group of guys. So we just kind of, we kind of struggled. Once we kind of learned a few things about, about putting, putting the team together, you know, we, we put together some guys that had a little bit more experience playing even if they were younger. Um, so we started the, our, our second, third, and fourth year up there together. We, we won some more games. Um, but I think the idea of getting guys from literally all over the country, I mean, we had, we had guys from Florida State, we had guys from, you know, the East Coast, the South, West Coast, everywhere that were traveling, I mean, far to get up to Alaska. 
And I don't think people realize like, how far Alaska really is when you're going even from California. But I couldn't even imagine guys flying from Florida to Seattle to Alaska. That's, that's a long trip. Um, but, you know, you get up there and it's just, it's always light out. You know, we're finishing up games, you know, at 10 o'clock at night and it's still light out. You know, there's, it's, it's never getting dark. Um, you know, we'd leave the base, we'd leave the stadium, you know, walk out of the clubhouse afterwards and there's a moose out in the parking lot. Um, you know, <laughs> we got a chance to, to go play quite a bit of golf and, you know, we'd go out golfing and we'd see bears on the, on the driving or on the, uh, on the fairway, which I was lucky because my ball is never in the fairway. So we always saw bears out there and moose and, you know, it's just awesome, you know, and then we always take our trips down to Kenai. Um, we would, we would take boats out from Kenai. Uh, where we'd head down to the Homer Spit, take guys out, and we would do some uh, halibut fishing. And, you know, the guys had their host families, and, and everybody up in Alaska, you know, the, the host families all had their, their family recipes for halibut and salmon and stuff. So, you know, guys would go go fishing at night after games and go catch a bunch of salmon and bring it home, and the host families would cook it up for them. And it, it was just such a cool experience, and, and getting to meet the people that were up there um, the league was a blast. I mean, there were so many good players that were up there. Uh, a lot of guys that have either made it to the big leagues or, you know, just had really good careers. Uh, you know, were good, good college players. It was, it was a, uh, it, it was such a cool time just to, you know, to be up there and see a lot of these really young, good players. Um, and, and even now following those guys along, Aaron Judge was up there, you know, David Fletcher. Braden Shipley was with us. Um, we've had about six guys that were with us make it up to the big league. So it's just fun being able to, to see those guys and, and watch them continue to perform at that, at the highest level. That is so cool. And I know that there was a time like way back when the Alaskan league was like the league for, for prospects. And obviously the Cape Cod league has, has maybe taken the number one spot, but, but I, I believe that Alaska, I know I haven't coached in college for several years, but Alaska is still a, a league for a lot of good players. Now, they just announced a couple of days ago uh, when we're recording this that the uh, that Major League Baseball is creating a new league. Uh, have you read about that? Did you, did you, have you learned much about that? Is that, for, is that a college-only wood bat, like a prospect league? Is that what, you're, what you understand it to be? Yeah, I, I saw the, the headline. I looked at it briefly. Um, I mean, from my understanding, it looks like it's going to be, you know, call, mainly college guys that either didn't get drafted. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't know this for a fact, but I don't know if it's college guys that didn't get drafted that want a chance to be seen to go play. High school guys that are kind of in that same boat that maybe identified as prospects. You know, I don't know if they have to get an invitation, you know, as a high school player or, or a college player, for that matter. Um, or, you know, call, maybe it was college guys that got drafted that are trying to, you know, up their stock once the drafts already happened and hopefully get towards, you know, the end of signing date and get something above slot. I don't, I don't know. I don't know enough about it, but uh, I did see that that's kind of the what's in the works. And I was almost, the way that I read it, and we don't need to spend much time on this, but, uh, uh, you know, neither of us know a lot about it. It was just announced. But, uh, but the way that I read it, it was – with with talk of the of the draft and maybe it's already official for this year, but the draft being pushed back at least I think in July, um, that this would give guys basically prospects a chance to play against one another and hopefully up their stock. Almost like, I mean, not like the NFL Combine, but in a way like this is the last chance to kind of showcase yourself. So I don't know. I though I didn't I didn't read anything specifically about it only being college. It'd be, it would kind of be cool if there were. 
Uh, I read what I guess what I read was draft eligible players, but then something else made me think it was college only. But how cool would it be if there were, you know, some some really high level uh, high school guys there playing against, you know, junior college freshmen, sophomores, and and like college juniors? I, I don't know. I don't know how it's going to work, but it's kind of cool. But um, anyway, summer leagues are are uh, just really cool places around the league, you, around the around the world. You'll hear other other things about. The Cape and how cool the Cape is, and, and these summer wood bat leagues for college guys, uh, for um, uh, for amateurs are, are are pretty cool in general. Um, I guess another another question, Tony, I'd like to ask is just we kind of talked about transitioning into college. When did you first start thinking about or 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 maybe toying with the idea of coaching for a professional team, or was that something that kind of was was set in your lap was it was that something that you um had a goal for yourself uh and, and that was something you sort of sought out on your own how did that come about and, and when did you first kind of just start start thinking about that or start considering that as a as an option for your coaching future i never did um i i never had aspirations of coaching pro ball um i think partially because i you know i played independent ball for a good two weeks and that was my professional experience um so i i didn't I just never thought about it. You know, my whole goal was to coach Division One baseball. You know, and go to Omaha. I mean, that was my—that's what I wanted to do. And so I was, you know, when I when I had a chance to go to UNLV, I mean, I loved it. I loved New Mexico. Um, we, when I was leaving New Mexico, you know, I was kind of in like a weird transition year where I was trying to figure out exactly where where I was going to go, what I was going to do. Um, and so in, this, in let's see, it was November of 2016, my wife and I were getting ready to head out for Thanksgiving, and I had an email from Gabe Kapler, and he was the um, farm director for the Dodgers at the time. And he just said, you know, shoot me a text when you get a chance. And, and so we started texting back and forth, and we had a bunch of players that year that were good. We had, we had a number of guys that were drafted. And so I was figuring, you know, he wanted to talk about some of our guys. And we actually had a few conversations, and I – you know, finally told my wife, like, I think I'm interviewing for a job with the Dodgers. <laughs> she was like, what do you mean? I was like, well, I don't know. I mean, it's a fairly, you know, casual conversation, but, you know, it's, it feels like a, an interview. And so, you know, we kind of went through the process of the of this interview with, with Gabe, and um, it, it turned into February, right before we were going to open up. And I finally called Gabe. I hadn't, hadn't heard back. And uh, I know he was interviewing a few other people, and you know they, they're they're very meticulous about who they hire. Um, so they weren't going to rush to any judgments or anything. But um, I finally called Gabe, and I just said, you know, just wanted to see if you had the update. And he said, yeah, you know, we end up going in another direction with the hire, um, which was probably better because we were leaving that Wednesday for Hawaii, and this was like on a Monday. Um, and he said, uh, but you know, if anything opens up, we'll we'll let you know. Thinking, okay. That, that always works out for, for nobody. Right. <laughs> um, so we, we, go through, we go through the season, and, you know, we're running our summer camps, and now it's the summer of 17. And he called me back and said, hey, you know, we had a job open. Would you be interested? And I said, oh, absolutely. Um, because at that point, I already told Coach Birmingham I wasn't coming back to New Mexico. Um, so I, I, I was, you know, kind of in the middle of looking for a job. And uh, so when he had offered me that spot, uh, you know, obviously it was too good to pass up. Um, and I'd actually just taken a job at South Mountain Community College here in Phoenix. Um, and so it was, we were moving out here anyway. Um, and then we, we obviously got, got the opportunity with the Dodgers and, and got started, you know, pretty much right away. 
So when you first were talking with Gabe Kapler and he said they went another direction, at that point, did you kind of say to yourself, all right, that was it was fun to talk, but now I'm just going to stick to college? Or, or did you kind of start at that point thinking, I mean, did you feel some disappointment and think like, boy, I could have been working for the Dodgers like did that did that kind of cross your mind and you think that that's an avenue for the future even at that point were you still pretty dead set on college um at, at that point obviously it was it was still kind of at that weird feeling of you know that was cool like I, I enjoyed that um you know that was that was kind of a, a neat like opportunity um but obviously he didn't think you know, he said, oh, we'll call you if anything opens up, which is like the classic breakup line. Right. Um, <laughs> I, I'm thinking I'm never going to hear from him again. Um, and, and I was like, I was, I, I was a little bummed out because I thought it, was, it, it sounded cool. You know, as time went on, you know, at first I was like, oh, this isn't going to happen, you know? And then as time went on, I'm starting to think I have a chance of getting this job. You know, you start thinking about how cool it would be. And then when it didn't happen, I was like, okay, I kind of need to refocus on, you know, what I'm going to do. Um, and it just—it was just time for me to move on from New Mexico. It wasn't anybody, it wasn't anything bad. It was just I'd been there for three years. I'd been in the same role. You know, I wanted an opportunity to move up, and you know that wasn't going to happen there. And uh, and so it was just time to start looking around. And unfortunately, you know, as you've seen, obviously in college baseball, like it's not easy when you're a volunteer assistant to try and get your name out to people as you know trying to get a full time assistant job when you don't have recruiting experience. Everybody wants recruiting experience, which I understand. However, it's difficult to get a job if you don't have that experience, but how can you get that experience if you're not allowed to go out and recruit? So it was very it was very difficult, you know, so that was a frustrating side for me. So I was perfectly happy coming to South Mountain. I mean I really enjoyed junior college. I was I was, you know, totally fine coming out to Phoenix. You know, it's close to home for me, it's close to home for my wife, it's from Las Vegas. Um, you know, it was gonna be a good spot for us. So I, I didn't really think twice about another opportunity with professional baseball. I was I was pretty much locked into, you know, go to South Mountain and do do good there, and, and whatever happens happens. You know, we'll see what's next. But um, the idea of being with the Dodgers was kind of out of my mind, and then the idea of going to another organization was out of my mind. That is just it's a it's a cool story, and it's interesting how this kind of stuff happens. Uh, several other minor league coaches I've talked to, I, I like to ask that question, just sort of how it came about, especially for guys that don't have uh, a background playing pro ball. And uh, it's just always cool kind of how that stuff happens. So to this day, do, I mean, do you know how or why Gabe Kapler reached out to you in the first place? Like, did do you have any idea how that even was initiated on his side? Uh, I, I, my name was given to him by, by one of my friends who's in our organization. Um, you know, and, and he had reached out and you know i think the the conversations just kept leading us to having more conversations and you know hopefully i answer some questions well enough to to keep those conversations going and um you know put myself in a position to you know potentially get a job but uh yeah i think my name was just given to him and he was kind of doing his due diligence on me that's cool so there's a legitimate chance that you could have had a first conversation and it did not go very well and you never heard from him again and you would have had no idea that you were even potentially considered for a job yeah, for sure. <laughs> so uh, this is kind of something that's it's very interesting to me uh, to talk with guys like you who have been on both sides. Um, you've been a junior college coach. You've been a high school coach. You've been a Division One coach. You you played at a good level of Division One baseball. Um, you you've obviously been coaching pro ball now for several years. C- could you sort of talk to someone? Maybe there's someone listening to this who has either 
in, in like in your position, maybe been reached out to or, or had a, a conversation or two with a pro organization, but it didn't work out, or someone out there right now who's coaching college ball who thinks like this would be something cool, I, I might like to get into the pro side of things. Could you kind of um, almost give some pros and cons to someone who is maybe considering and, and just or, or maybe sort of trying to map out their future? Am I better? Am I better fit for college baseball? Am I better fit for pro baseball? Would you mind? Is that something you could do? Would you feel comfortable doing that? Sort of give them pros and cons of each side and just um, maybe things that. Uh, I don't know that, that are different about the levels as far as the actual day to day stuff, as far as the you know the length of the season, the travel, um, you know the receptiveness of the players, just a- anything that you may think is a little bit different between the levels. Yeah, there's and there's a, there are a lot of differences. I think for me, so I will say in my experience so far in pro ball, you know, I've spent like when I got here at seventeen, I was in the Arizona league. I spent eighteen and nineteen here, and then twenty, I was supposed to go out to to Ogden, so. That would have been my first time at an affiliate doing the travel, being in the stadiums. So it's hard when you're comparing like atmospheres. For me, it's difficult because again, there is an atmosphere difference when you're playing at a regional at Texas Tech when there's 7,500 people there versus an Arizona League game when there's you know 42 people there. Um, <laughs> you know, and kids are making their you know their professional debuts right out of high school or college or or the you know the Dominican Summer League. So they're taking away like the atmosphere part of it because of my experience I can't speak to that but you know the, there are definitely pros and cons of each and I think somebody that's going through the process of potentially being interviewed by a major league organization and I had a really great conversation with a coach yesterday who wants to get into pro ball everybody knows how technology is being used at this point you know everybody's trying to find the next like big technological um, analytical metric, whatever you know, wording you want to use for player development, for, for improving players, and you know. So I think people are trying to go out and they're trying to get different certifications, and they're trying to you know be able to attach these knowledge levels to their name so that they can have conversations in a skilled way with people that are interviewing them, and they may or may not know how to use it. They may just have kind of taken a class got a certification and it's not nothing against any like certification by any means it's just to say you know if you don't have experience using these things you need to be honest you need to be straightforward with the organization because if they do use those things and they're going to expect you to be knowledgeable in the technology that's being used and you don't um, that makes it very difficult uh, you know when i was in new mexico we didn't use technology we didn't have trackman we didn't use blast we didn't have rapsodo none of it and well into the Dodgers and I'm being interviewed and they're going, well, talk to us about, you know, your experience with these things. And I said, well, I've heard of them. You know, I, I don't know anything about them. Um, and I, again, I, I'm glad I was honest about it because I had no clue anything about these things um, just because we didn't use them. And I think if you're trying to impress an organization by talking about the technology, if you don't have experience in them, it's really difficult to speak on them. So the first thing I would say is if you're going through the interview process, just overall in general, just be honest, be authentic, be yourself, because you're going to have to defend that. You're going to have to, you're going to have to live and die by who you are. Um, you're going to go in, and, and I think you're going to get your eyes opened quite a bit. Um, I, I've, I know that I've done it. I've felt it every single time I've switched levels. When I went from high school to junior college, junior college to Division One, Division One to pro, to pro ball. You get to a point where you think, all right, I'm sweet. Like, I've got this figured out, and now I'm ready for a new challenge. And 
I've never felt that one day since being with the Dodgers because there's always new challenges. There's always new ways to look at things. There's You're surrounded by a whole bunch of people who have a ton of experience, a ton of knowledge. I, mean, I can sit down and eat breakfast with you know, Charlie Huff or Placido Polanco and, you know, they start talking and you're listening and you're going, oh my God, I've never thought of it that way. And all of a sudden you've just got a completely new way of thinking about, you know, some sort of the game, some, some, some aspect of the game. So, you know, I think it's it's about educating yourself, but also like knowing the material, knowing the information that you're going to speak on it, being authentic about it because you're going to have to defend it, and then go in and just coach and like coach the guys that you have. Um, I, I think part of the difference or the biggest difference is the relationship we have with players at this level versus in college. I felt myself in college constantly going to players saying, okay, you need to do this. Like, this is what you're going to do today. And there's no feedback, there's no communication, there's no conversation about it. Versus right now, we can put together a group of things that, you know, drills or what, what have you that the players are going to do. Uh, but there's a lot more feedback coming from the player. We can ask them, hey, what do you need from us today? You know, there's times in the cage where we can go to them and ask them what they need. And they'll say, hey, I want to try this or I want to do this. You know, what's your routine? What are you trying to do? So it's a lot more player-centric than I feel like it was, you know, in, in other levels, especially more so in high school and college. Um, we also have the luxury, more or less, of time where we allow our guys to to fail, to go out and, you know, experiment with different swing changes or, or things like that. We give them the opportunity to, you know, go out there and play. Um, and knowing that we're playing a little bit longer of a game, then we have to win this series. Otherwise, I'm probably getting fired. You know, we don't have, we don't necessarily have that on us. Um, you know, it really comes down to the development of the player versus you know, the team winning. So, I, I do think those are some of those differences. But you know, there's there's definitely a, a lot of uh, a lot of differences. There are several different things I'd like to ask you just from from that. Uh, but I'll start with. The, the thing you just touched on, just being player centric, more so in the minor at the minor league level than at the college level. Do you think that? I, I guess I, I hear more and read more about coaches at the college level, kind of talking about relationships and, and how important it is, and with the players, you know, and and um, and, and being having more of a personal relationship with players, and maybe that's and like you. You and I are you're a little bit older than I am, but but similar. You're the same. Um, uh, you're, I think you're older as old as my brother, who's a couple years older than me. But but I think we played in the same, roughly the same time. There wasn't like the tech that there is now and things like that when we played in in high school and college, um, and probably had a similar experience. You know, we we coached around the same times uh, in college ball. Do you think that the way that that your well your experience basically that it's more player centric in pro ball than it is in college is that a mistake on the part of college coaches or do you think that the way that high school and college ball works and and that you're still trying to um these players are still trying to learn who they are and learn what a routine is and learn what you need to do at these levels to be successful is it a mistake for college coaches to not be as player centric as you as you see in pro ball or is that something that is necessary at those levels to sort of give these players the base that they need to be successful at that level and beyond I, I would say yes and no I, I think in one sense 
there's a there's a big difference because once they get to Pro Bowl, it's like it's it's your career. You have to own it at, at some point. Um, you know, there's guys that are going out hitting with you know their own hitting guys in the off season, and they're coming back and and um, you know their their job is to perform. You know, and then we have people whose job it is to make decisions on how they've performed and if they're going to fit at the next level and, and the, the progression of their career. There is a difference because, you know, quite honestly, at this level, and it's happened, you know, not a lot, but, you know, a couple of times, a handful of times where a guy says, hey, I, I really need to talk. Can we go grab a beer and chat? And it's like, yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and guys have some stuff that they need to talk about. You know, most of the time it's not baseball related. Uh, they just need somebody to have a conversation with. And, you know, you're on the field with these guys, you develop a trust with them, you develop a relationship with them, and you can have that, that honest conversation with them. You can't do that in college baseball, and you can't obviously do that in high school baseball. But um, it's just not—it's just—it's a—it's a difference. There's there's definitely a difference. I don't think it's a mistake because in college baseball, coaches are coaches have to win, and so the they're they're, they're the point they're coming from is putting the best team out on the field that they can to win games, and we have to develop players. We have to develop each guy to get guys to the next level. You know, whether it's moving on from rookie ball to, to you know low A, whatever it might be, or double A to the big leagues, you know, that's our, our job. So the personal relationship from our job as coaches in the minor leagues is to develop each player. You know, it's not about necessarily like we have to put the best team out on the field right now in order to win this game tonight. Otherwise I'm getting fired if we don't win. Um, and, I, and I know college coaches have faced that. You know, they, they, they feel pressure that they have to go out and win. And so they're making decisions based off of the team versus based on each guy's individual, um, you know, progression. I've, I made mistakes in the past where I was coaching third base and gave a guy a green light. And I had I was asked why, or I'm sorry, I gave a guy a red light on, like on a 3-0 pitch. Um, the situation called for him to probably not have the green light in that, in that spot in the game. Uh, but I did it, and I was asked why, and I explained why, and you know, I was basically told that like that's hindering his development, and and it, it took me a minute to think about it, but I'm like, yeah, I, I get that, you know, for the team, that probably would be the best opportunity for him to take, but for him individually, for the length of his career, I probably needed to give him a green light and let him swing right there, um, and not not handcuff him. So I don't think it's a mistake in college. Um, However, I, I do think um, I, I think there's a lot of differences with the levels that 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 relationship is probably a little bit more impossible to to have, especially with the head coach. You know, in college baseball, yeah, that might be not to go grab a beer with them, but like the, a relationship where you can have more of an open conversation is probably that with you know maybe the the, the volunteer assistant, maybe. You know, the guy that recruited you, um, who, you know, he's been in your family's living room and you've had different conversations with him. Um, but I, I don't think it's, a, it's necessarily a mistake, but I, I do think that just the nature of pro ball versus college ball and, and the, the ultimate differences, I, I think they just don't allow for those relationships necessarily. If I had an opportunity to go back into college ball, I know that I would do some things differently than I did. But what you just explained and the way you you talked about, I mean, that was really how that was really kind of my experience. Um, you know, I coached at several different schools, but I can say that my the best relationships that I ever had with players was when I was a volunteer uh, at Winthrop, a Division One in South Carolina. That was 
Uh, I got invited to more weddings from guys at Winthrop than any other school that I ever coached at because I was a volunteer there. Um, part of my job was field maintenance, so I was always on the field. So guys that came out for extra work, I was there. If a guy wanted to come out, you know, obviously we're in South Carolina. If a guy wanted to come out and, you know, do a little bit of – we had guys do this. If a guy wanted to come out and do a little bit of field work and take his shirt off and, and get a tan and, like, hey, man, come on out, help me out. And, like, we'll hang out for an hour and BS and – and we did that a lot, especially like catchers. I know you're a catcher, a background with catchers. Catchers liked the plate area to be very meticulously taken care of, and I did too. So I, I was like, I was constantly kind of redoing that area, reclaying, um, getting rid of high spots, whatever. And on days like that, I would tell catchers, "Hey, I'm going to work on this stuff tomorrow if you guys want to come out." We had a great group of catchers, uh, and a lot of times they would come out, and, and I had I had better relationship with those guys that year or those couple years I was there than I did. Uh, as a recruiting coordinator or, uh, or, or any other position that I had. And I think that's a big reason why. Like the, it's like the higher up you are on a college coaching staff, the harder it is sometimes because of a lot of the decisions you have to make. And even as a recruiting coordinator, like I had a good relationship with guys, but at the same time, like they knew, and, and sometimes it would even be a joke with them that like, Hey, I'm going out tomorrow to, uh, recruit a guy that I hope can take your spot. <laughs> and that's like, I, I it, it's, it's, I'm sorry. No, you're 100 percent right. I, I, I feel the exact same way. It's, it's the, the relationships you have with guys as the, as the volunteer. It's like they know that you're out there. Like you said, you know. I mean, we did it at UNLV. We're playing a six o'clock game, and you're on the field at nine o'clock getting field ready. And you know, you're doing the field maintenance stuff. You're you're more available to work with guys. Um, and, and so you do. You develop that relationship where they know they can come to you. And again, every guy that's been a volunteer has had it where. A player's come to you and gone, hey, like, you know, coach wants me to do this. And I'm just not feeling comfortable. You know, what, what do you got? What can you do? What can you tell me? You know, and they want to hear it in a different way where it's not a, you know, there's a little bit more personable relationship or conversation that's there and not them being told you have to do this this way. And, and I agree with you 100%. I think that, that relationship you can have with players as a volunteer um, is, is very, very different. And like you said, they, they know your job is to go to a high school game and find a guy that's going to replace me. So there is kind of that like uneasiness, I think, with like a, even a recruiting coordinator. You get back from a, a recruiting trip, and guys are like, you know, sort of they're sort of just interested, but they're sort of also, I think, a little bit nervous. Like, hey, who'd you uh, who'd you go see yesterday? You know, did you did you go see another shortstop? Or <laughs> that's just kind of the nature of it. But um, if you were to go back to college ball. Not that that's necessarily a goal, but if you went back to college ball now, because of the the different relationships you've experienced as a, as a pro coach, would you change the way that you were with players or your relationships, your interactions uh, with them in any way from from what you did as a coach? I, I know that you weren't necessarily uh, a college head coach at any point, but you know, regardless of what kind of position you had, would you change your relationships at all or the way that you communicated with guys because of your pro ball experience? I, I wouldn't. I think because I, I was always – I think guys knew like who I was and what I was going to bring to the table. You know, I'm going to give you everything I've got from a coach's, coach's perspective. Um, yes, you can come to me if you need to talk to me. Um, I will absolutely be there if we need to have a conversation that you want it to be confidential. Um, because of just the nature of it. Um, but I'm also going to be very honest with you and I'm not going to sugarcoat it. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll tell you the truth. Like, it's, this isn't, yes, like I'm not going to be mean to you and I'm not going to, you know, 
degrade you and put you down and think that your performance is a reflection of who you are as a person. However, I'm going to be honest with you because my job ultimately is to make you a better baseball player. Um, but, but yes, we can have a conversation and we can be real with each other and we can have fun and we can joke around. Um, but once that's happening, if you take it too far and you, you go, you know, a step past or it's inappropriate, then we're also going to have a conversation. So I don't think I would change that, that interaction that I had with guys. It's, uh, it's just such a, it's an interesting thing. And I, and I see where coaches are coming from the college guys out there that are, that, that talk a lot about the relationship and, and with the players and things like that. But I, I agree with you. I just, I think that, that, that college ball is just, it's just different. And there, if you really, whether you have pressure, whether the pressure to win is internal or external, you know, whether you're at a, at a JUCO or a division three, that's, they're not going to fire you no matter what you, as long as your kids are, you know, getting good grades and they're graduating and they're not getting in trouble, you're not going to get fired, but there's still internal pressure for a lot of coaches. To me, the, a, a guy that is a winner puts pressure on himself to win. Um, so I, I there's just, it's, it, it's, there's just a different, mentality about it that I agree with you. I mean, I, there are things that I would change for sure. Things that I think I could have done a lot better, but there are also things that I think I could have, that, that I would do the same because I think it's appropriate at, at different levels. Um, how receptive are the players in pro ball to change? And, and, I, and I ask that just with the idea in mind that these guys have already had success, either a, a tremendous amount of success at high school or you know, probably a tremendous amount of success in college as well. They have been drafted. Um, they, they've obviously done a lot of things right to get where they are when you get a hold of them. How receptive are players uh, in your experience in pro ball to, to to change or to adjustments, to a little tweak here or there? Uh, or or does, it, does it take failure on their part to get to a point where they're receptive? You know, from, again, from your experience working in a minor league system. From my experience, they're very receptive. And I think the reason is we allow them to fail. You know, we're not in a rush to make a change. You know, we're not in a rush to um, to change what they're doing because of failure. Um, I, I think, for one, we've got, we've got the data and we've got the tools to show them exactly why they're struggling. And, and again, this is like taking out maybe a mentality issue, you know, aggressiveness, something that's going on like internally. Um, just in terms of a physical movement that they're doing um, or statistics that are showing, hey, this is where you're struggling. This is why we think you're struggling. This is how we're going to go to work. And then it's actually a conversation with them of, what do you think? How do you feel about that? You know, what what's good, what's bad? There's, there's some back and forth. But they are receptive because of the time that we have. You know, obviously some guys have a shorter leash on their professional career than others do. Um, but we're still going to allow guys to go in and fail before we just – you know, go on and make a swing change. What drives me nuts, and it, it's always driven me absolutely crazy, was, you know, when coaches will say, well, that swing's not going to work at the next level. And I always go, well, how do you know? Like, we're not that good as coaches to go, well, hey, this swing that you've had your entire life that's gotten you from, you know, the junior high 12U NU national championship to high school to junior college to a four-year school to drafted to a ball is now all of a sudden not going to work in double a like the, the the adjustments that you've been able to make because you know your body you know your swing better than anybody all of a sudden it's just not going to work you know or it's got you to college and now it's just not going to work you know if it's not going to work 
why'd you why'd you recruit me? Like why'd you why'd you recruit a guy who you you're t- saying well you know we can go and, and get a number of guys, but I, I really like this guy. Once he gets here, we're gonna change his swing. Like it's asinine to me. And yes, we're gonna be able to add in information. We're gonna add in things that are helpful for them. But if you don't give them the opportunity to fail, like why are they going to listen to you? You know. And, and again, I understand. You're in Division One baseball. You've only got you know a month or five, six weeks, whatever you have in the fall. You don't really have that much time to let guys fail. But how much more receptive are they going to be if you allow them to fail a little bit, and then they're coming to you going, "Hey, coach, like man, this doesn't feel right. Something feels off. You know, what are you seeing? What can we do here?" Versus, okay, you just had a bad weekend, and we did this. Everybody's done it. Where a guy has a bad weekend, and you know, you're off on Monday. You get back to work on Tuesday. You know, thinking you're going to get in the cage, you're going to do drills, you're going to do all this stuff with them. You're going to do it on Tuesday, Wednesday. You're going to jump on a plane, fly somewhere Thursday, take BP at that field, and then he's going to go out and perform Friday, Saturday, Sunday after working at it for three days. And it's only in response to negativity or failure. So you're you're responding by freaking out, changing your swing, doing something completely different because you failed or didn't have the success you wanted. And now you're going to expect that you're just going to go out and have this new swing that's going to be the fix-all. I mean, it might be a band-aid, but it's not going to ultimately fix your swing. So I think that the amount of time allowing a guy to fail will open him up and allow him to be more receptive to, to being coached and, and open up more to, to suggestions. Um, and I think that's why guys at our level have have been open to you know these conversations that we need to have or, or our hitting coordinators, hitting coaches need to have with these guys because – They've gone out. They've done what they do. We've allowed them to do what they do. Um, they've been successful, and so we just, you know, have a different kind of conversation with them, or they've failed, and they're opened up to, you know, some changes that may need to be made. How much of uh, I have some other stuff I want to get into, but just I'm curious about this. How, how many uh, conversations do you have with guys, if ever, where you kind of say like, "Hey, this is where you are, and you're not necessarily failing." But I think you could take your game to a whole new level if you did this. And if you ever have that conversation, are, are guys receptive to that? That this is kind of stuff I'm curious about because I like the player development side, and um, but it's but it's not always uh, the player development conversations are not always easy if you don't give a guy time to fail. And in college, sometimes you just you don't have time to give a guy like a really extended period of time to fail because, like you said, as, as the coaches are. The coaches need to win or else the coaches get fired. And that's the life of a college coach at, at a lot of levels. Um, so just kind of curious if you have that conversation with guys about like, hey, you know, you're know, you doing this right now and you're pretty good. Like you just hit 280 this year, pretty good year. I think you could hit you know, a little higher with more power if you tried this. Um, have you had that conversation with guys? And if so, what's the feedback been like there? Yeah, I think it depends on the guy and it depends on the timing. You know, if it's at the end of the season and you can sit down with them and say, hey, like you said, you just hit 280. You had a nice year. Um, this is what you did really well. Like, these are the zones you handled well. You know, you really hit velocity well this year. You know, now going into instructs or going into next year into spring training, you know, we really need to address, you know, hitting breaking balls. And the reason is you had a swing and miss percentage in zone of X, right? So you're not only are you not hitting them, but you're swinging and missing at off-speed pitches that are in the zone or fastballs. In-zone fastballs, you're gonna you're swinging and missing at an alarming rate. That might be something to have a conversation with after the season. And those guys are going to be receptive to it because it started out with, hey, you did a good job. You had a nice year. However, if you're going to continue to move, these are the things that need to be addressed 
that the people in the upper levels that make decisions are going to be looking at it. You know, they're going to be looking at, yeah, he hit three, hit 280. However, he swung and missed at fastballs in the zone 60% of the time. And, and that's something that's alarming because that's going to be exploited as you, as you move up in levels because got, now guys are throwing with more command. You know, they're able to do some things that guys in the lower levels maybe not able to do. So, and certain guys are going to handle that better than, than others. Um, you know, and then the timing of it also. If it's the middle of the season and the guy's going really good and you're going, man, you are absolutely crushing, you know, the ball down in the zone. However, the, the fastball up, you're really struggling with. Let's address that. Um, you know, that's probably not a time or place to go to that guy. Um, you know, that might be like a, a post-season conversation, but obviously you're, you're keeping an eye on those things, but it, I think it always comes down to the guy and to the timing. I can remember one player specifically um, for one of the teams that I coached, he, and, he, and he must have hit like 350 or somewhere in that range, like a, a really good year for a college player. And he and I had a conversation about basically, I mean, anything that was middle of the plate and out, he handled really well. Anything that was on the inner third of the plate especially, he had a difficult time getting the barrel to it. And there were some things that I wanted to work with him on. And But in his mind, it was like, Coach, I just hit like 357 or whatever. Why would you be asking me to change anything? And one of the other coaches on the staff agreed with him. And my, you know, my conversation with the other coach was like, "Yeah, I get that he's he's really good, but he's only really good on on balls in certain parts of the strike zone." And I, I'm not saying he needs to be like a pull happy player, but I think that we at least need to get him to a point where he can pull his hands inside a ball and 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 get the barrel to it, or at least at least foul the pitch off. Because he was kind of like, if you could really bury a fastball on his hands, he he was out. Uh, and I just I wanted to be able to get him to a point where he wasn't out on that pitch, and it it ultimately wasn't he he wasn't really receptive to it, and kind of remained the player that he was for the rest of his career. And um, and it was a good career, don't get me wrong. But that like I I think back to that player and just kind of wonder to myself how could I have approached that differently, or or what could I have said, or what would have needed to happen in general for that player to be receptive to that, or was that particular player just not going to be receptive unless he hit 257. Like if, as long as he kept hitting, was he going to just do his thing without like in my mind, maybe he would have hit 400. I don't know. But, but that, that's like, that was my, uh, my perspective and how I, I would have, how I could have approached that. I don't, I don't know, but I kind of thought of that player when you were giving your answer there. And I don't know what the answer is to that situation. I, I think it's like, again, that's a, that's an example of it coming down to the guy. You know, if he said, Hey, I hit 357. Like I'm good. I'm, it's, Okay, well, are you going to hit 357 again next year? Um, but, but again, we're trying to build complete hitters. And, and so if you have a overwhelming, you know, weakness in an area or a glaring, you know, bad spot that a pitcher can constantly throw to to exploit your weaknesses, you know, at some point word gets out and you're going to get crushed. You know, you're, you're not going to be, keep getting fed fastballs away that you can, you know, get your hands extended on. You know, it's like, it's like when you're doing BP and you're going, okay, we're going to, we're going to work this round on moving runners from, from second to third with nobody out, you know, and you're going, okay, well, you got to be able to take the four seam flat fastball that's on the outside edge and be able to hit a ground ball to the second baseman. Like that sounds great, but you're not getting that pitch. You need to hit the two seamer that's bearing down on your kneecaps and be able to drive a ball into the gap the other way or hit a ground ball or get a job done on that pitch. So again, like some guys want to be coached and they want to be pushed. Um, and some guys, you know, they're very happy with kind of the status quo of, Hey, I had a good year. I'm good. 
um, let's just let's address that when it becomes more of an issue. One of the last areas I'd like to touch on, Tony, is something that, that you sort of act, maybe accidentally touched on that I think is important, and I, I think I'd like to just kind of hear your take on it. Is is winning in minor league baseball, and and I and I'm going to ask this. I'm going <clears> to <throat> put this question together with with a little bit of depth behind it. Um. Okay, so so you talked about in the minor leagues development wise, you guys aren't you're not in a hurry. Right, you're not you're not you're not going to rush somebody like you might have to in college. So you're not necessarily in a hurry to develop people. Uh, you you there is time for a guy to fail a limited amount of time. Obviously, so too much failure, or even for a late round pick, you know, one season of failure could be it. They they could be released. Um, but you're not. But but in general, you're not in a hurry to change guys. And and the and like you talked about with coaching third base, you know, giving the red light on a three zero pitch to certain hitters, and then the organization talked to you and said, "Hey, we, we need to give him the green light there." Uh, and now you understand that concept. But but the obvious point there to me, um, just with a different set of eyes, is that the the focus is on the individual development as opposed to the team's winning. And I think people know that generally speaking about the minor leagues, it's not about winning. Winning is a nice byproduct. I think that when you when you have a team that's full of really good players, you're just you're naturally going to win quite a few games there. But you know decisions that are made throughout the year by the managers as far as who's playing and where they're playing and when they're playing and and how how often different pitchers throw and and how long a starter is left in and who's pitching at the end of the game. It's more about the development. It's more about what the future looks like. It's more about who's got a future in this organization than it is necessarily about which guy is the right guy to win this game. And that's generally speaking. Obviously, there are situations when there's not. That's not the case. But what I kind of what I want to ask in this question to bring it together is that the Dodgers have figured some things out as far as winning games. Um, but but it's not necessarily a focal point in the minor league system. And I and that's that's different as well from your college experiences that it's it's about winning in college. Certainly, development is important because you can't win games if you don't recruit and, and develop players. But the big focal point there is to win. Then a guy gets drafted and he goes to the minor leagues, and it's more about development and the and the focal the focus gets taken off of the wins per se. Then you get to the big leagues again, and it's still about performing. Like if you're going to stay there, you've got to perform. But it's you you perform to win, and if you're not going to help the team win, you're not going to stick around. Um, I, I guess I kind of want to ask you, in general, how that's handled in the minor leagues, if it's talked about at all, and if you believe that the better organizations out there, such as the Dodgers, do something different maybe than other organizations do, so that winning... So that by the time a guy gets to the major leagues, it's not like winning is this thing you haven't thought about for four or five years and now all of a sudden you're going to focus on winning again if this makes sense i hope this 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 in general is making sense to you what i'm saying but i kind of just want to talk about just the concepts of, of the minor leagues about development and then all of a sudden you get to the big leagues and now it's about winning again and if um if if an organization like the dodgers who has had so much success if that's addressed at all in the lower levels or if it's just not talked about, and the Dodgers are just that much better on the field that it just happens when you get to the big leagues. I'm just I'm curious about this part of minor league coaching, especially when he, once guys get to the big leagues. Yeah, there, there's a lot. There's a lot of layers to that. For one, we you know you, you can't how do I word this? You, you can't 
suck for four years through the minor league and think you're going to get to the big leagues and think all of a sudden that you just you know how to win. And I, and I think that's one thing that we've seen over the past number of years in our organization is how often our minor league teams are, are going to the playoffs or going or, and winning championships. Um, my first year in 17, we went to the playoffs. My second year in 18, we won the Arizona League. You know, that year we had, I think, three of our affiliates won their league, um, and all six of our stateside affiliates went to the playoffs. So, for one, we have really, really good baseball players. And, like, as coaches, I think that's where the credit needs to go first is the fact that we have really good baseball players. It is easier to win when you have good baseball players. You know, like people talk about recruiting and teaching hitting. It's like, just go recruit good hitters. It's easier to coach good hitters than it is to turn a bad hitter into a good hitter. So for us, like, for one, our scouting department is unbelievable. They get, they do their homework, and this isn't to say other teams don't do their homework, but our scouts do such a good job of going out and finding players that are going to work in our organization and, and move their way up. You look at the World Series roster and how many of those players are homegrown guys, how many guys that were either drafted by us or signed by us that made it to the big leagues and now they're contributing on a World Series championship team with us. That's a huge source of pride for everybody in the World Series, from scouts to minor league coaches to front office, everybody. So it's not necessarily something that we address on a daily basis. You know, that's the winning side. Like for us as coaches, obviously we want to win. I don't care what you're doing. If you don't want to win, then, you know, I don't really care much for you. Um, but you, you want to win if you're playing a game. And so you're going to coach the game to win the game. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to put a player's long-term um, development into um, jeopardy. Not, not even jeopardy, just you're, you're not going to take that into consideration when making in-game decisions. If your big power hitter's up and you've got a runner at second base and nobody out and that's the winning run, you're not bunting him in an Arizona game or in double-A. You know, you're going to let that guy go and, and swing it just like he's going to do when he's in the big leagues. So you have to let guys kind of play into that role because once they're in that role in the big leagues, if they've not been in that role in the minor leagues, they're not going to know how to do it when they get to the big leagues. And then in addition to that, yes, winning is important, and we're going to put our players in the best position possible to win, um, and the players are going to go out there and, and under the expectation that they're going to play every game to win. Now, if we don't win, we're going to go get after it again tomorrow. You know, we're going to we're going to win or we're going to lose. Like, we know... <laughs> We were told once, you got four outcomes. You're going to play well and win, play well and lose, play poorly and win, or play poorly and lose. One of those four things is going to happen. Don't be shocked when one of them does. And, you know, when you go about your business and you play and try to win the game, and if you don't win the game, you can look at it afterwards and see if there are decisions that you made from a coaching perspective that you could have done differently that may have put the team in a better position to win. Uh, Maybe it's a personnel decision. Maybe it's, you know, a strategic decision, whatever it might be. But I think once you start looking at those things, then you, you, the game ends and you take the result a little bit easier um, than if you, if you are living and dying simply by did you win or did you lose. But again, like to say that we were prioritizing the player's development over the winning of the game doesn't mean we're not making winning important. You know, we have a history of winning through the minor leagues. We have a history of winning in the big leagues. And that's something that, you know, if we want to continue happening, you know, we're not going to give up winning. Um, really for anything. However, that is a kind of a byproduct of having really good players that do things the right way, they go about their business the right way, they handle themselves as professionals, and they're able to go play at a high level 
And the majority of the time, because of them doing those things properly, we win games. Um, so again, it, it just comes down to kind of how that wording is. Um, we're, we're just we're not gonna we're not gonna push winning aside, um, but we're also not going to push a player's development aside for the sake of winning a game. You know, we're gonna look more big picture. Another just an interesting thing that I imagine took some time adjusting from college to pro ball. Um, that mentality and the decisions you've got to make, and part of the decisions that I'm that I'm kind of thinking about or talking about would be, you know, toward the end of a game, if you a guy's just having a really good year, but he's probably an organizational player at best, he's not going to move up, he's not a future big leaguer, you know, a big spot in a late in the game. There's a chance, there's a pretty good chance, I imagine, that if everybody is healthy and available, that you're going to go to the pitcher who's got a future in the big leagues, let him pitch some late game situations, as opposed to the guy who's having a nice year, but he's probably never going to make it past double A um, type of deal. And I know that that stuff happens from time to time, and, and that's kind of, uh, I think it's interesting, and it's, and it's important for players. Like I, I think there's a, a really important part of development and winning that, like, no matter what you're doing, if you're on the field, the, your players have to be competing to win. But the manager's not always necessarily going to put certain players. I guess different guys are going to get opportunities based on their drafts. You know, based on who was drafted where. For for example. And I'm not trying to say this in a negative way at all, but like, you know, the first, a first rounder is going to get more opportunities than a 40th rounder. And that's just, especially in the low minors. And that's just kind of, kind of the way it is. Uh, even though the, the guy that was drafted in a 40th round might be having a really good year, the first rounder is going to play every day because they, you guys, you just spent, you know, $3 million on the guy. And, and that's just kind of the life of, of the low minors. But at the same time, like, obviously you're still, if you're in the lineup, you're you're expected to compete and try to win. You know every pitch, every at bat, every inning, whatever it may be. And um, I don't know, just something that's interesting. And I just I wonder. You haven't been a part of other organizations, but I just I wonder if that's something that that separates. You know, really, really good major league teams with average ones is is sort of how much that's pushed in the minor leagues, just the competitive part of it. And, and when you're in there, that you're in there to win. Um, even though there are bigger goals than necessarily winning at the rookie level or, or low A or whatever. I, just, I wonder, maybe you have some friends are there in other organizations, maybe you talk about that, I don't know, but I wonder if that's something that's different between organizations and maybe one of the separators between some of the really good organizations that win all the time and other organizations that you know win sparingly at best. I, I haven't had those conversations with guys. I, I do know, you know there's been times, especially down here, where um, it's, it's the end of the game, and, you know, we're at a point in the lineup where, like, yes, if we're in a playoff game right now, like, we're probably going to pinch hit. Um, you know, this guy's probably not on the mound in this situation if we're in a, if we're in a big must-win, you know, playoff-type game. However, like, we need to put that guy in that position so he's been in that position because if we see – we have a guy that's got some potential, and he's a, especially for us, you know, he's a young kid. Man. He might be 18, 17, 18, 19 years old. You know, he's got to be in that position. And if he fails, he fails. Um, but he's better off having been in that position 10 times and failing, you know, a number of those times so that in three years when he's got a chance to go to the big leagues, you know, he's in that position again at a higher level. He's been there a number of times. He's been successful in that situation. He's failed in that, uh, that situation. But it's not his first time being in that situation. If we bail him out every single time because we're going, man, we might have a better guy that can throw right now, but this guy's got potential, and we need to hit, 
we need to give him this opportunity to be on the mound in this big situation, you know, with really the, the game's kind of in his hands right now. And we need to give him that opportunity to go and do it. And the flip side, if you've got a guy that's hitting in the bottom of the order and his spot comes up, you know, and it's it's July in the Arizona League, um, it might not be the time to ambush somebody on the on the um, on the bench and go, hey, grab a bat, you're hitting. You know, because we have to win this game. Like, let's give this guy an opportunity because maybe this is a situation where, like, this guy steps up and, and gets jobs done um, as the pressure mounts on him a little bit. Like, that might be a time where a guy a guy really figures it out and is able to bear down and really put together a good at bat. And, and you don't know that unless you put that guy in that position. And I think that's where learning your players, learning what they can and can't do, learning how they handle certain situations uh, becomes bigger than winning that game. You know, if you put your guy in that your best hitter in that situation, he gets a walk-off hit, it's great. Everyone's excited. We won. You know, someone's going to get a, a water cooler dumped on him. Um, but I can assure you that they're going to be more excited when the kid that has been struggling, who's batting, you know, eighth because – you know, he's our defensive catcher who, who doesn't really hit. Um, when he goes and, you know, squibs the ball up the middle and we walk off, uh, I guarantee that team's going to be a lot more excited than if you just put your first rounder in there to go get the job done. <laughs> That's cool. And it's it's interesting. I'd, I'd like to, you know, I don't know if we have time to get into it now, but I'd like to just, I'd love to hear about how, you know, the players interact with each other at those at lower levels and, and just how much guys gel as teammates, things like that. All, all interesting stuff, really interesting stuff with minor league ball. Uh, Tony, I probably have extended this as much um, as I can with you uh, as far as taking up enough of your time for today. This is Tony Capicelli, everybody. He's uh, a minor league coach with the Dodgers. Um, interested to see what happens in your future, Tony, and where you end up. Uh, and look forward to continue to, to watch you kind of move up the levels now that you're a part of figured out. Now that you've you and I have had conversations, I'm excited to, to watch you progress. Um, that stuff that stuff is always interesting to me as well. Just to kind of follow people's careers. But I want to just thank you personally for taking the time to be on this podcast. Um, you're, you're a guy that you know. For people that they're listening to this, that you know, we didn't know each other ahead of time. He and I, Tony and I, basically messaged each other on social media, and I, I said, "Hey, would you want to be on a podcast?" And, and he was all about it. So that part, I'm very, very thankful for. I, I'm always grateful for guys that are willing to come on and share their story and their perspective. So uh, I appreciate all the time and, and everything you shared with us, and, and this has been truly, truly enjoyable for me. Absolutely, I appreciate you having me on, Jeff.